Well, good morning. It is so good to see you on Easter Sunday, and it's always nice to see guests come out. We can't see you online, but several people contacted us and said they would be online, so hello, and we're thankful that you're here. Daniel just read a part about being sensitive to sin. Can I talk to you today about being sensitive to sin? You know, I I started, I look back over 12, 11 years that I have preached on Easter at Trinity, not including seven or eight somewhere else, and I tried to see, what have I shared with you? Well, I've given seven proofs of the resurrection, evidences of the resurrection, and all this stuff. And I finally, you know, the older I get, the more I realize that I am probably not going to convince you of anything. As a matter of fact, if you want to know something, you're probably going to study it, and you're going to be pricked about it, and you're going to dig into it to see whether or not it's true. So instead of this morning me sitting up here proving to you, and by the way, there is evident proof. As a matter of fact, one scholar said that there was more proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than there was that Pontius Pilate sat on a throne. More historical evidence. So it's not the fact that people will deny the evidence. You can't. It's evidence. People just choose to reject it. So when we think about it in light of that, what I want to talk to you this morning on is something different. And that is, what is the big deal about the resurrection to your life? And what about to another man's life? And what about to people's lives who fail? By the way, have you ever failed in life? You know, let, let me say something to you this morning. If you live long enough in life, you're going to fail. And if you never fail at anything, it's because you never do anything. And if you live the Christian life, you are going to fail in the Christian life. Now the question becomes, what are you going to do? Are you going to let failure be final? Or are you going to let failure be a great teacher in your life and a motivator to make us do what God wants us to do? Well, that's what I hope you will do. Karen and I were actually privileged to be in Israel. I went there on a study tour, and we saw the grave that they claim was Jesus' grave. Whether it was or not, I don't know, but it was definitely empty. (laughs) And it was definitely empty on Sunday morning when the apostles went there, when the women went there, when the Roman soldiers looked inside. I mean, there's just no way you can deny that. His body wasn't there. And by the way, had they found one scrap of evidence that Jesus' body was there, even so much as a finger, the, the whole concept of a resurrection would be ended. Complete bodily resurrection. And the passage that Christopher read this morning about the face cloth being folded, that translation literally means it was a cocoon of his head And when he passed through it, it was sitting right there where he was, and it had never been cut open, still the full-fledged face of Christ. He passed through it. Now, when his apostles heard this and saw this, they didn't know what in the world to do. There's one particular man that I want to talk to you about this morning, and his name is Peter, because Peter is my favorite example. Because poor old Peter 
could somehow or another get a size 13 shoe in a three-inch mouth. And he could do it every time. But you know what? He had such a heart. Jesus had told Peter, he called him out on the seashore, by the way. If you don't know the story, let me tell it to you real quick. He was walking by the sea and Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was getting ready to choose his disciples. They never chose him, by the way. He chose them. And he went up to them and told them, cast your net on the other side of the boat. You've fished all night and you'll pull in a haul. They thought, who is this wisecracker over here telling them? We, we're, we, we fish for a living. And so, you know, when you're desperate, what do you do? You do what somebody tells you. So they cast the net on the other side of the boat, and lo and behold, it was so full. Other boats had to come and help them get the fish out of the nets. They come in and figure out who Jesus is, and he says, follow me. And so they all leave their business. George, thank you for that wonderful testimony. If you're right into my service this morning. Left their business, followed Jesus, and for three years of their life, watched him perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, rebuke the Pharisees, confounded the wise. There wasn't a Ph.D. scholar around that could touch him because every time they tried to question him, he tied them in knots. He was the scholar because he was God. Peter, for three and a half years, follows Jesus, and Jesus gets right up to the final days of his life when he's getting ready to die on the cross. And by the way, all four Gospels record this. So it has to be very significant. Anytime you see all four Gospels record something, it's important. Jesus told his disciples, you are going to fail me. Well, the rest of them probably thought, well, you know, that's very possible, Lord. Peter could not stand it. Not so, Lord. I'll never fail you. So Jesus has a word for him and all the rest. I'm in Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Ooh, that makes me quake. Did you hear what I just read? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. You see, there are things in third heaven that transpire that you and I do not know. There is a spiritual world that we can't see. And the enemy of man who wants people to believe that there is no God or God doesn't exist or the spiritual life is just a figment or it's just matter in the mind, that's his deceptive world. Jesus said, Simon... There's something you don't know and the rest of the disciples. Satan has desired or demanded to have you. By the way, the first word you there is plural. In West Virginia we say y'all. There's 12 of them. Satan has, de has demanded to have all of you. But now notice what Jesus says that he might sift you like wheat. Let me ask you a question. Do, do we really think we're tough? You know, I have met people in my life who really think they're tough. And here again, lessons come with age. Oh, how God can break you. Oh, how he can break you. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
Have y'all ever watched wheat get sifted, bounced and beat? He wanted to shake you up. But now listen to what Jesus told Peter and the eleven. But I have prayed for you. He demanded to have you just so he could just dash you. And by the way, if you don't think he's good at that, go back and read Job. God allowed him to take the lives of all of his children. Now can you all imagine this? Took his house, his livestock, his farm. He took everything away from him and then he went right for his health. It was so bad that Job's wife told him, just curse God and die. You miserable man. Just curse, curse God and die. That's how bad it was. But Job proved faithful, but Peter didn't. Notice what happens. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now the second word you here is singular. You see that? When I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, singular, talking to Peter directly, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now this is a beautiful picture, and if you miss it, you're going to miss what I'm trying to say. What Peter was told by Jesus is this, Peter, you're going to mess up. But when you turn, you remember I've got a purpose for your life. It is not over. You strengthen your brothers. Now you know the story. Peter then boasts, Lord, I'll never do that. Jesus says before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Well, Jesus is being hauled off to the accusers and somebody says, hey, he, he talks like a Galilean. He, he's with him. I'm not with him. The same thing is said again. I told you I'm not with him. And then finally... He let out a curse word and swore, cussed, I told you I don't know that man, blank, blank. And the text says, at that time, Jesus turned around and looked directly at him and his eyes cut through his soul. And the text says that Peter went off and wept bitterly. He went off and wept bitterly. Now, you know, sometimes you can read stories like this and go, Oh, wow. what, what does this tell you about our Lord? It tells us that he is concerned about individual lives. And his piercing eyes went right to Peter in this trial of his life. He was always thinking of his own. You ever tried to hide from God when you're sinning? You ever tried that? Oh, I have. I've tried it. Think, you know what, I'll, I'll hide, Lord, and I'll do this, and boy, the convicting power. The old preachers used to call it the hound of heaven. You know what a hound does, don't you? It sniffs, gets on the trail, of, and it finds you. They would say the hound of heaven will find you. We don't hear preaching like that anymore. But I want you to know something. If you're one of his, the hound of heaven will find you. And he will not let you wallow in your sin forever. The resurrected Christ will act. 
And in this case, that's exactly what he did. So how does the resurrection of Jesus bring restoration? Well, let me just talk to you about failure quickly. Do you know failure is a great teacher? If you're alive, you'll fail. It doesn't need to be final, and failure has certain benefits. Did you know that? Failure is actually an educator. Uh, As a matter of fact, you really don't know a lot of truths in life until you fail at something. But there's something about when you fail, it makes you go back and study something and master it so that you are uh, not so happen to fail the next time. So it is an educator. It makes you get after it. But failure does something else. It's also a motivator. Did you know that most people who succeed do so because they have failed many times? So maybe you're in life and you've tried something and failed and you think, well, that's just not for me. Well, don't give up so easy. Maybe God wants you to keep on. You say, well, I've tried this and it just didn't work. Uh, uh, Okay, you're just going to accept failure. Failure is sometimes meant to teach us, don't quit. And that's exactly what Peter's going to be taught. But failure also not only educates us and not, not only motivates us, but it does something else. Finally, failure cultivates us. Did you know that God uses failure to build character in your life and my life? That is how we become stronger by failing. Don't feel like a failure just because you fail. Because oftentimes, and as a matter of fact, I would, I would say almost all the time, but I won't say that. Many of the times, God, or most, time, most of the time, God uses failure to shape our life more so than success. Now, in the life of Peter, he's going to teach him some lessons about failure because Peter blew it, folks, blew it. As a matter of fact, if you read the accounts, after Peter denied Jesus, he ran off. Jesus was crucified and he was buried, put in the grave. It was on Friday evening. Saturday came. The women did not put spices on him, but they gathered them and they waited till Sunday morning, which would have been three Jewish days, to go out and meet him. And when the women went to the tomb, the angels met them there and said, go tell the disciples, the brothers actually. And then Mark records, and Peter. Now why would Mark record and Peter? Well, most people believe that Mark was discipled by Peter. And he wanted to make sure that his mentor was mentioned. Now, let me tell you an astonishing fact. I'm in John chapter 20 now, so turn there if you will. John chapter 20. John is the only gospel that is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Are you all tracking with me here? Here's the way you remember where the death and resurrection is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You go to the end of the gospel. The death is in the next to the last chapter, and the resurrection is in the last chapter. That's true in Matthew. That's true in Mark. That's true in Luke. 
But when you get to John's gospel, it's totally different. As a matter of fact, when you get to the last chapter of John's gospel, it's not dealing with the resurrection, it's dealing with Peter and his restoration. The resurrection took place in chapter 20. Now he adds this story. Now, I don't know about you, that fascinates me. He's adding a story about a man who denied Jesus and failed in his Christian life, but now he has an opportunity when he meets the resurrected Lord to make things right. And so, Jesus confronts Peter, and of course Peter gives the famous that I've put on the screen here. He turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? That's John, the one who's writing it. He should have just said it was me. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about that man? I mean, you just told me some bad news. You told me I'm going to suffer and die for you. What about him? Now, are you ready? This is the most important lesson of the whole sermon. Jesus told him, Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? What's important is you follow me. You follow me. Don't you worry about what I do in his life. You follow me. So what are some lessons that Peter learned about a life of service and failure? Well, here we go. Lesson number one. That true success in life is based on listening and obeying Jesus. Do you remember how I told you Peter was told to follow Jesus? He was fishing. Don't y'all love how God works things out? John chapter 21, notice what happens. I'm going to start reading in verse 20 and verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples, were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Isn't this interesting? Forget this living for Jesus stuff. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to do what I know I can do and I can be successful at. Because I surely am not successful at the Christian life. So I'll go fishing. Doesn't that sound like us? They said to him, what? We'll just join you, brother. We've had enough of it ourselves. We will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But here's God's sovereignty. But that night, they caught nothing. Now, I should preach on this for a while. Do you know God does use circumstances in our life to get our attention? He'll bring high blood pressure in your life to teach you that there are some things that you better shed and there's some things that you better learn to deal with. He'll bring high cholesterol into your life to teach you that if you eat certain things, you're going to pay the price. And if you do certain things, He'll bring other things into our life. And in this particular instance, He dried up the fishing hole. They caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Now can you imagine this? 
You've been out fishing all night. Y'all know how fishermen are, don't you? They, can you not, y'all can't hear them. Who is this guy? Strolling out here. We've been working all night and he's going to come. Are you serious? They answered him, no. You know, no, probably. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, it doesn't record their dialogue here. But we can only imagine what it was. And this is probably what it was. You know, you remember one time when we were back, you know, Jesus, it was just crucified. Do you remember when he told us to throw the... And we did, and we thought he was a fool, but we did, and we couldn't haul in all the fish. We haven't caught a thing. What's it going to hurt? They said, sling it. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, a full, full of large fish, 153 of them. Talking about exact eyewitness here. <laughs> and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Two miracles happened. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, this is funny. You got the picture? Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? This was the most silent breakfast you've ever seen. You ever done something real dumb? Like, take your father's truck out one night and go play in the mud and then ram into a tree and tear the whole side of his truck up because you took it out mudding and sneak it in. That didn't happen to me. It was my brother. Yeah. Ooh. Breakfast was quiet that morning. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, he fed them. He met their needs. Is this something the most basic need here? They were hungry. He met their need. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first lesson that these men learned, and you and I should learn too, is that true success in life is not based on bank accounts, man's opinion, success in life, how big of a house or a portfolio we have. True success in life is based on living and obeying Jesus Christ. Now, he might just give you the rest of that just for kicks and giggles. As long as we don't fall in love with it, as we learned last time. But that's true success. There's a man named John Polehill who wrote a commentary on this, and listen to what he says. Imagine again the scene as the evangelist framed it. A charcoal fire and three questions about Peter's relationship to Jesus. It hardly takes a genius 
to relate this event to that of the denial. Facing up to oneself is sometimes a traumatic experience. You know, we don't take very long to examine our own life, do we? Jesus fed him, then he had a fire. If you go back in the Gospels, Peter had made a fire right when he told Jesus three times, I won't deny you. So here Jesus makes a fire. And now he's getting ready to confront him. Which leads us to the second lesson in life, and that's this. When we fall as a child of the living God, we must humble ourselves and be restored. We must humble ourselves. Listen to what the account says in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you? Here was his question. Do you love me more than these? Now, people say, well, what is these? Does that mean the fishing nets, the boats? No. Does it mean the other disciples? Probably. Do you love me more than these other disciples? Notice what Peter said. He said to him, yes, Lord. (laughs) Come on, Lord. You know I love you. Kind of confident-like. You know I love you, Lord. Now, y'all ready for this? Don't you like it when somebody asks you, are you a... Are you a believer in Jesus? Yes, yeah, I'm a believer. You living for the Lord? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm living for the Lord. How? How are you living for Him? What are you doing? How's He changed your life? I mean, how has Jesus made you a better employee? What do you do in your, in your work? that makes you stand out above everybody else because of your character. What do you do? Do you, do you grumble and complain all the time and let everybody know, boy, now that's a real Christian right there. Or do you go in and you work and you sacrifice and you serve your boss like you're serving Jesus, as Colossians says? You have a good testimony. Uh, what about a husband? How, how has the resurrected Christ made you a better husband? How do you treat your wife? Are you a servant? I mean, do we want to be served all the time? Are we a servant? Now, this is convicting. Do we as husbands take the initiative in, our, in the life of our wife and family and love her and do things that we should? What about fathers? How does it make us a better father? Do we just sit around and we watch our kids failing? Or do we actually get involved in their life, get the issue on the table and talk to them and deal with the issue, open the lines of communication with them so that we can get things going. And by the way, the older your children get, the more you realize you're not the Holy Spirit. You can't fix their failures, their disappointments, their discouragements, their problems. But you have to be there and be willing to listen to them. And you have to be like Jesus with these other disciples and meet their needs and have an ear and a heart for them. I have to give the women a little bit here now. How does it make you a better wife towards your husband? Are you submissive or are you demanding? Are you dominating and ruling and always trying to manipulate him or are you letting him take the lead and praying for him and encouraging him? I can tell I'm plowing near tight ground here. (laughs) But my point is when we fail... In our lives, 
the resurrected Christ wants to restore us. And there's hope. Now, what happened? Simon, do you love me more than these? And he said, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. No sooner did the words come out of his mouth, he said it again. He said to him a second time, Simon, you love me? Simon said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I mean, I told you once, right? He said to him, tend my sheep. No sooner did the words come out of his mouth, he said a third time. Y'all imagine this? By the way, I read a great article on why things were repeated three times in the ancient world. And it was basically to probe down into somebody's heart and let them know, you're not telling me the truth. By the way, when you all take psychology tests and psych tests, you ever notice they ask you the same question reworded about six different times? Can I tell you why? Because we lie. We lie. We want to put out the best part of ourselves. And they end up wording those tests. See, I just blew it for y'all, didn't I? Sorry to the psychologists, but that's how they determine our truthfulness. And when we twist up some of those answers, man, they just come in and start boom, 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 boom. Then they start digging. This is what Jesus was doing. You love me? He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice what happened. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. Finally, he got it out. He said to him, Lord... You know everything. You really do know my heart, don't you, Lord? You know that I love you. Now, there is a change of words in this passage. Some people will sometimes say that agape is God love, but that's not true. When you trace it to the Gospel of John, the Pharisees use the word agape many times connected to them. The point here is that even though these words may be slightly different, The whole concept of this is Jesus is pulling out of Peter, did he really love him? Now, after he finally got him to admit, Lord, you know everything, you know that, you know, Lord, I want to love you. I think this is kind of what he's saying. I want to love you. The Lord said to him, then feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now what's he told him so far? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Follow me. Which leads to our third lesson in life, and that's this. A life of service can sometimes be a difficult life. Now, aren't you glad that God doesn't tell you when you get saved what's going to happen in your life? And by the way, we have to be honest here. If you think that you become a Christian and everything turns rosy and glowy, oh my dear friend, no, no. Could you imagine if you, when you got saved that God would tell you that you would get cancer and die early in life? 
Perhaps that your kids would lose their life. Perhaps that you would lose a job. Perhaps that something tragic would happen to you. Can you imagine that? That you are destined for a life of suffering as a Christian so that your testimony would be used by God to impact many, many people? Do you realize that there are people in God's Word that He called to depression? There are a lot of Christians that struggle with depression. And they don't realize maybe that's part of their calling. That they would find hope in the midst of that. The Apostle Paul talks about the grace of suffering. You should read his letters and just type in the word suffering in Paul's epistles. And he talks about it being a grace that God gave him to suffer. Jesus told Paul when he got saved on the, Emmaus, on the Emmaus road, Damascus Road, I am going to show him the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. There's a whole theology of suffering in the Christian life. And part of being a servant of God is the willingness to suffer for him. And what did he tell Peter? Peter, when you were young, you did it your way, but when you get older... You're going to do it my way. Because somebody else is going to lead you by the arm and take you where you don't want to go and they're going to stretch out your hands not for a fishing net. They're going to stretch it out for a cross. And you're going to die like I did. You all know what church history says. It says that when they went to crucify Peter... He told them to do it upside down because he wasn't worthy to die upright like he's Lord. And church tradition says they crucified Peter upside down and that was how he died. A life of service can be a difficult life. The fourth lesson we learn is this. When serving Jesus, we must keep our eyes on him, not others. I read this to you Previously, but I just want to read the one phrase what Jesus said to him. After Jesus told Peter that he would have his arms stretched out and die, Peter turned around and looked at John and said, Lord, what about him? How's he going to die? By the way, isn't this so much like human nature? Can, can I talk to you all for a minute? We, we look at other people and base our contentment off of others. So some people look at others and say, boy, if I had the money they had. Do you know the people that you're saying you wish you had their money are looking at other people going, boy, I wish I had their money. Some people have a good job and people look and say, I wish I had his job. The people that have that one are going, I wish I had that one. Or I wish I didn't even have to do this. Somehow or another, we think if we can get exactly what the other person has, total peace and happiness will come in our life. Peace doesn't come, George, thank you for saying it again. It doesn't come from finances. It doesn't come from a home. It doesn't come from a moving, another state, luxury. Those things are all temporary, but when you get right down to it, every bit of that stuff's going to fade away. True peace only comes in having a relationship with our Maker and our Savior. And Peter said, 
What about him? Jesus, can you, can you all imagine this? What a counseling session. Don't you worry about him. You. You follow me. But, but Lord, what, what? Don't you worry about him, Peter. You be faithful to me and I will lead you every step of your life. And wherever I lead you, I will be with you. Stop worrying about others. You follow me. When I read this this week, I started to think about David Flood. I read his story to you a while back. He was a missionary. Gave up everything and traveled across the seas. Went with his wife, his children got over to a foreign land. His kids died. His wife was pregnant, giving birth to the other child. She died. That little girl had to be taken away and raised by another village. David Flood became such a bitter man. He left, came back to his own home and holed up in a room for years upon years and became an alcoholic. He was so hateful that people said, you can't even get around the man. Don't even dare mention the name of God because he is a staunch atheist. And if you mention God, he will curse you and kick you out of his room. And here this foreign missionary who had never told anybody about his life, embittered toward God because of trials he suffered, his abandoned daughter who had been traced around to several different families, married another man and went into missions. Saw a cross with her mother's name on it, did some investigation and found out where her father was and went and found him. When she went in and found her father, liquor bottles lined the room. He was eaten up with cirrhosis of the liver where he had drank himself to death. And she walked over and mentioned his name, Papa, and said, I am your daughter. She said, Jesus loves you. That hard, bittered man melted. Melted right there in front of his daughter. Prayed that God would forgive him of his hardness. God melted his heart. He gave his life back to Jesus. And shortly after that, David Flood died. But I want you to listen to me. He didn't die as a failure. He died as a restored child of God. Don't leave this building without being either a child of God or a restored child of God. And here's how you do it. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you realize that He went to the cross and died your death on the cross to pay your penalty. And by simple faith, you believe that he did that for you. And if you believe that, God's word says that he will give unto you eternal life. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You have to believe what if you have believed in Christ and this morning you are miles away from him? You know you've believed in him, but 
sin has crept into your life, you do exactly what Peter did. You come right back to him and you say, Lord, I know I failed you. I need your forgiveness for my sin. Not that I need to get back in your family, but I need to get back in your fellowship. There's a difference, folks, between relationship and fellowship. When my brother crashed my father's truck, he didn't not become a son. He became a son that was going to get a chastening. He was still his son. He was still at the table. He just didn't want to talk. But do you know what my father did, unbeknownst to all of us? My dad extended incredible grace to my brother and never did one thing to him. He looked across and said, You shouldn't have done that, but you told me you were sorry. Son, I forgive you. It's just an old truck. It'll be in the junkyard one day. You know, I sit there going, It's going to be a killing. And my dad extended grace to him. I'm going to tell you something. As a kid, it changed my life. Because I thought dad was going to beat him. I saw a picture of God right there in my father. Did my brother deserve it? Absolutely not. Dad had every right to beat it out of him. But he didn't. He offered unconditional grace and didn't even make him pay for it. And that's exactly what Jesus does to his children. Come back to me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And anyone here who needs to come back, oh God, may the Spirit move in their heart and may they know your love for them. And may they follow you. Help us to keep our eyes off of others and put them solely upon you because you alone are worthy to follow. And may we learn from the restoration in the life of Peter how much you love your children. We thank you for it. We praise you and we bless you for who you are. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.